solve a murder, he stepped into the dead man's shoes. Spencer have a first name? He called himself Bob. Officially, I don't exist. Here you go. He followed the trail to White Sands. This is about creating enemies when there aren't any. I don't ever get involved in these kinds of deals. Give a half million bucks to a man you don't even know? Where truth is the ultimate disguise. I've never met anyone like you. You're honest. Even when you're lying. You don't trust me. <laughs> Where's the money? Where deception breeds like a virus. Willem Dafoe, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, and Mickey Rourke. White Sands, the most dangerous place to be. But you're not bored anymore, are you? Welcome to episode 24 of Unclear and Present Danger, a podcast about the political and military thrillers of the 1990s and what they say about the politics of that decade. I'm Jamel Bowie. I'm a columnist for the New York Times opinion section. I'm John Gans. I write a Substack newsletter called A Popular Front, and I'm working on a book about American politics in the early 1990s. Today we are covering an extremely 90s type of movie, the 1992 crime thriller White Sands, directed by Roger Donaldson and starring Willem Dafoe, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, Samuel L. Jackson, and Mickey Rourke. Here is a short plot synopsis. A small southwestern town sheriff finds a body in the desert with a suitcase and a half million dollars. He impersonates the man and stumbles into an FBI investigation. As always, you should watch the film before listening to our conversation. White Sands is available for rental on iTunes and Amazon, as well as for streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Before we get started on the movie, let's look at the New York Times page for the day of release, April 24th, 1992. April 24th, 1992. Here we go. So let's see what we got. Well, a car plows into the park, killing four and injuring many in Washington Square Park. Uh, this is just a car that went out of control um, and hurt and killed some people. Look at the byline. Dean Beckett. Yeah. And he was just a, he was just a, a cub reporter back then. He's probably more than a cub reporter. But yeah, it's it's always funny when you read the Times and you see all these, these names that have become legendary. Um, political memo, why Perot could pose a threat with 100 million. It's his own. So... Basically, this is Perot is gearing up for his independent run at the presidency. Um, he has a lot of his own money to, to blow and uh, he doesn't have to raise money and he could just create his own organization and, you know, spend a lot of money, which he kind of did. He was, I think, a pretty resentful about actually having to spend his own money in the end. Um, a little bit of a cheapskate, as many billionaires are. Um, but that's the political memo for the day. Scientists report profound insight into how time began. The Big Bang Theory is back. I remember this as a kid, the Big Bang Theory becoming sort of accepted. Now we just take it for granted. But I, this, I, I sort of vaguely remember. I don't know if it was this when this news came out, but I remember this being discussed. Um, Pennsylvania governor criticizes process that's turning it to Clinton. So Bob Casey, um, the governor of Pennsylvania 
was criticizing the primary process um, because Clinton was being nominated, but there was kind of a sense of lack of enthusiasm behind him. He was winning very low turnout primaries. Um, so he had a bone to pick with that. Of course, as we'll see right beneath this, Casey had his own political agenda here. And this was not just for the sake of the Democratic Party. Casey was one of the last big pro-life Democrats, and he was involved at this point in a famous Supreme Court case, which would be decided later in the year, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which was a the biggest abortion case until Dobbs, partially struck down, partially upheld Casey's um, restrictions on, on abortion in Pennsylvania. And according to many scholars, uh, both left and right, um, sort of set up the end of Roe v. Wade by kind of gutting it. The dissents sort of created the uh, legal pathway for Dobbs and the um, the opinion, you know, raised a lot of the concerns about and kind of criticized the Bush administration for once again filing another amicus brief trying to get uh, Roe v. Wade struck down and sort of telling them to stop that it was it was uh, it was settled law and they should they should cut it out. Which, of course, um, no one listened to. What's interesting, just real quick, what's interesting about Planned Parenthood v. Casey um, in part is that in the lead up to, I mean, during oral arguments and in the lead up to the release of the opinion, the the consensus um, was that we might, it was sort of not dissimilar to what we saw um, before Dobbs, right? That like there was a real fear among abortion rights advocates that like the court would overturn um, Roe v. Wade. And you have to remember that, you know, Roe v. Wade decided 7-2 by a mostly liberal court of actually largely Republican appointees, but, you know, the ideology, the ideology of justice and partisanship had, had not, not yet been so tightly connected. Um, but by the time you get the uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 91-92, you have Scalia on the court, you have Sandra Day O'Connor on the court, you have Anthony Kennedy on the court, who were understood to be conservative justices, right? They weren't, they weren't the liberals who they replaced. I think only one or two of the people who um, uh, decided in Roe was actually on the court at that point. Blackman was still there, but he was very old. Is Thomas on the court yet? Yes. Yes. So Thomas. Is this is one of an early decision of his, right? Or early decision he was involved with. So you have four of the nine justices are. Republican appointees who are conservatives, and two of them are very hard right conservatives. And then you have kind of uh, William Rehnquist, who is a conservative, another Republican appointee under Nixon. So you have this, like, at the very least, a 5 4 majority of conservatives um, who run the gamut from being uh, very right wing to, like, you know, moderately conservative. And there was real pressure within the Republican Party among Republican activists to, like, kind of, you know, just get rid of Roe. Uh, and so the the decision, which as you as you say, John, kind of guts Roe in a lot of ways. Like Roe has the trimester framework, which is what Roe introduces. That abortion is basically, you know, cannot is the constitutional right in the first trimester, mostly a constitutional right in the second trimester, and then is open to regulation in the third trimester. And Casey says that actually abortion can be regulated. Throughout, as long as those uh, regulations are not an undue burden, which of course raises the question of like, what the fuck is an undue burden? Um, 
and that, that that's what opens the door to all kinds of shenanigans because it's not it's not very difficult to say well you know you know making sure that this clinic has to abide by uh, a set of rules that are impossible to abide by, abide by uh, is not an undue undue burden anyway uh, so that's what Casey does but it does uphold the basic finding in Roe which is that abortion is protected by the Constitution um, uh, up to a point under the Fourteenth Amendment and by in upholding Roe. Uh, in that way, even if they did provide this, like, you know, massive avenue for undermining abortion rights, like O'Connor and Kennedy became kind of like persona non grata for a lot of conservatives. And so the the next, uh, when, when, when W is in office, kind of part of the reaction against Supreme Court nominees or uh, the Supreme Court nominee Harriet Myers, his first choice for the vacancy um, left by O'Connor is sort of like, well, we don't want another O'Connor. Like we don't want, we don't want, um, we don't want a chance that you're going to nominate a justice who won't basically like hold to the Federalist Society line. And so then we get Sam Alito. And they were very afraid. I mean, like the, like on paper, George, George HW Bush was very uncompromising about abortion, but in practice was very scared that they were going to do Dobbs then basically. Right. Yeah. Because that could have been a real, I mean, he didn't win, but it could have, they were worried about a bit, huge political debacle in the election year of, of getting, of Roe v. Wade getting struck down and, and, and just having to deal with a lot of angry voters because of that. So they were kind of relieved uh, by the compromise, even though on paper, you know, and in public statements, um, HW was very hardline about abortion, but that was really strictly political because if you look at his past, he had come from this kind of, uh, Yankee line of uh, pro Planned Parenthood politics, which sort of has some unsavory aspects of like not wanting immigrants and Irish people and Catholics <laughs> to have, have too many babies, but but was pretty supportive of, of of Planned Parenthood and family planning in general as a as a practice. So had had not been a hardline anti-abortion person until you know that became the politics of the Republican Party in the 80s, and he had to go that way. What I find interesting about this, like how the Republican Party becomes so anti-abortion is that even in the 80s, right, like it's not, there's still this like relatively large faction of moderate Republicans who are in the party. Um, uh, you know, Reagan, who is, you know, kind of in some sense the first pro-life president. Uh, also, it's not something that like compels him. <laughs> he's just sort of, I mean, it's not like he was a libertine in Hollywood, but he's also like a Hollywood guy. And so it's sort of like, you know, Reagan has a political commitment to anti-abortion uh, policy and nominating anti-abortion judges, but it's sort of like, it's not something that like kind of clearly inspires him. And it takes basically until the, the, the Gingrich cohort of Republicans to get the kind of more contemporary style, like, oh, these people are all true believers. I don't think I mean, I think that, you know, with with both issues, Reagan's record is bad to the point of being disastrous. The same thing with with gay rights. I think Reagan thought he was an open minded guy. He knew he had gay friends in Hollywood and he, he, he wasn't really animated by by homophobia. He definitely tolerated it and, and used it politically. But I don't think it was a real passion for him. And I think it bugged him when it went too far. In the and, and I think a similar thing with with abortion politics, which he was sort of yeah, tolerant about it. And just in case listeners are wondering why we're spending so much time on this, it's just in the news uh, today on the day we're recording. 
Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, the, the senator from South Carolina, introduced um, more or less a national abortion ban into the Senate. And it's not going to pass, obviously, but um, it is it is a statement of purpose for uh, the Republican Party. So it's it's sort of, you know, abortion rights are are very much um a live question. I mean, they've been a live question for for years, but like in this particular moment, sort of like whether or not American women are going to be subjected to basically a pervasive reproductive police state is a is a live question. To your point about there being pro pro choice Republicans at this time, there were there were pro life Democrats because Casey was it's case in point. There's just that the the parties have totally ideologically polarized on that pretty much at this point. Um, for Moscow's first post-communism May Day, portraits of Lenin are giving way to advertisements at the Kremlin Wall. An unfinished billboard was at the back, backdrop as the guard changed at Lenin's tomb. Okay. Peru's fugitive ex-president tells of escape from troops. Um, Alan Garcia, the currently fugitive former president of Peru, sat safe house and described how he was able to avoid the tanks encircling his home on the night that his successor, Fujimori, decided to disband parliament and curb the judiciary. I don't know very much about this. I mean, I know who Fujimori is, but I didn't know about this, what sounds like coup uh, in Peru at this time. Um, I'm going to look more into that. And a very small note, de Klerk refines proposal for black role in government. South Africa's president offered to bring black black leaders into a transitional government and proposed that his presidency be replaced by a popularly executive executive council. So we're still at in 1992, in the winding down of apartheid, which I don't think fully ends until 1994. Um, so that's often in the news. Uh, you know, apartheid, basically, apartheid South Africa is r- really relied on the Cold War to continue to exist. Um, and in the absence of the Cold War, n- did not find many countries willing to justify the continuation of, of apartheid. So uh, the end of apartheid is sort of part of the post-Cold War story as well. Uh, the, the one thing I want to highlight is um, in the yeah. in the bottom left corner, uh, Satyajit Ray dies. Uh, the Indian oh, filmmaker yeah. died at 70. And uh, he's just um, one of the great pioneers of 20th century film. His sort of magnum opus is the Apu trilogy, um, Bengali language Indian films, uh, t- tracing the, the life of a, of a young boy named Apu. Uh, uh, highly recommend you watch them kind of really, you know, towering achievements in world cinema. And again, just because it's in the news, right? Jean-Luc Godard uh, passed away today at 91. Uh, I, I got to be honest. I thought he was already dead. <laughs> Me too. I really didn't think he was alive. My, I know that he was alive recently, but I didn't know he was alive today. <laughs> my, yeah. my wife uh, this morning was like, Hey, did you see Godard, Godard die? And I was like, wait a sec. Excuse me? He's he was alive? <laughs> he wasn't even that old. He wasn't even that old. He was ninety one. I thought it was expecting him to be in his mid nineties, but not even. Um yeah. but uh yeah, so just just kind of worth noting uh the death of Ray back in ninety two, the death of Godard today. Just uh uh if you've never seen Breathless, go watch Breathless. Go watch, you know, a movie that still um, does radical and startling things with the very form of the movie of of of, the, of cinema. Um, a fun little piece of trivia that I like uh, when what's his name when Warren Beatty was so Warren Beatty starred in Bonnie and Clyde and more or less produced the movie and got the movie made. And when Warren Beatty was looking was trying to get someone to direct the movie, he actually like went to Jean Luc Godard first. 
um, and like, you know, really tried to get this guy to direct the movie. And although that did not happen, the movie does have a lot of touches from the French New Wave um, throughout, including, including at the in the final sequence when uh, Bonnie and Clyde are, are killed, which is, by the way, still kind of like shocking and disturbing to watch um, when they're killed right before it. Uh, Faye Dunaway looks directly at the camera and sort of a, a, an homage to Goddard. So uh, I've never uh, seen that one still. I got to see that. That that that's a that's a movie that I like. It's good. It's very sort of like late sixties, like in its pacing. It's a little dated. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's a little dated. But uh, like I said, that final sequence of Bonnie and Clyde getting ambushed and killed is actually incredibly disturbing. Like it it is it is still kind of like when we watched it with my wife, when my wife and I watched that, I should have just like taken aback by how violent it is and how sort of like visceral it is in a way that I think that if you tried to, if you made it for screen today, like the movie is basically PG until that scene. And I think if you're doing ratings today, rating the movie today, that scene alone would like bump it up to an R. That's how just sort of like intense it is. Did you see that movie that was from the, that they made for Netflix, the uh, the highway was it Highwayman? Yeah, the, the highway that was with was it Kevin Costner? Kevin Costner and um, what's his name? You know he's super famous. I'm just blanking on his name. Is it Bridges? Jeff Bridges? No, it's the other one. <laughs> <laughs> the um, other humbly mouth guy. He, he's in. He's in. He's in No Country for Old Men. Oh, How can um, I uh, uh, not Tommy Lee Jones, um, but. Um, uh, oh, why can't I remember his name? He played George W. Bush. Um, and his dad, uh, come on. His dad rock, murdered a federal judge. How could I not? How could I not remember his actual name? This is so weird. Oh, uh, Woody Harrelson. Yes, it's Woody. Yeah, it's Woody Harrelson. Of course, who's it's it's shameful that I forgot his name. Anyway, that's an interesting, weird little made for Netflix movie, which was kind of like the law and order upverse of Bonnie and Clyde because that movie was very like the six, 60s, 70s, like, ah, isn't it cool? Like crime and outlaws. And this movie was very much like these old Texas Rangers, like bringing law to the, to, to, you know, the wild west again. So, so two things before, before we get to the movie proper, I know we feel like tangents, <laughs> yeah. but listeners like tangents. Um, yeah. Two things. First, I thought you were talking about Jaws of Brolin. I did not know that Woody Harrelson's dad killed a federal judge. Um, yeah. He, yeah. He assassinated uh, a federal judge. That's uh, absolutely crazy. Uh, and yeah. the, the second thing is that a better version of that kind of movie uh, even though I'm not sure it's a good movie, it's a better version of it, is Michael Mann's Public Enemies with Johnny Depp. So if, you, if you're not a Johnny Depp fan, you know, got to get past that. But it's about, um, it is about. Uh, I recently watched that. Yeah, what's, uh, I can't forget, I can't remember the criminal that. John Dillinger. Yeah, right, John Dillinger. And it's about Babyface Nelson and because they were in the same gang. That movie is good, except I can't get past the the, the digital photography which is aged so badly i like it i like it a lot because i I mean i think man's very intentional about his use of digital photography than this i think the point of the digital photography is actually to sort of like strip away the the myth and the edifice around a guy like dillinger sort of like the whole the whole 
theme of the movie kind of, I mean, is this transition from analog to digital analog crime, right? Sort of like, you know, people with faces and names that, you know, and they're famous and they're romantic to kind of more impersonal, you know, financial style crime, sort of like things that don't really involve that involve organizations and same with law and same with the law. Um, right. So uh, the FBI is a bureaucratized law right. enforcement. Christian yeah. Bale's character sort of like the last uh, the last uh, gasp of the lawman who you recognized onto this yeah, bureaucratized modern form of uh, law enforcement. And so the analog, the digital photography, I think, is there to um, to 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 emphasize the thematic the themes of the film that like trying to get strip away edifice. It doesn't. Like I, I I agree that like it early digital photography, which at this point is still pretty early, it doesn't age all that well. But um, I think it's used to good effect in this film. I'm gonna have to agree to disagree there because <laughs> I, I I rewatched it and I was like, this is driving me fucking crazy. I mean, like it just makes all the amazing costumes and sets look terrible. That's that was my <laughs> that was my takeaway from it. I get what you're saying that there's like an artistic case there, but I don't know. Um, I'm also wasn't, like a, a total you know Michael Mann uh, um, right Stan, apologist <laughs> Sam, apologist whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I'll defend yeah. all of his movies and all of his choices. <laughs> Um, all right. Uh, the movie White Sands, which we did watch and we will talk about uh, before we talk about it. Some quick production notes. I have a lot. I'll streamline them because we get to the main discussion. Um, we've seen a Roger Donaldson movie before. We previously covered his 87 film with Kevin Costner, No Way Out. And we will cover his other collaboration with Costner on the Cuban Missile Crisis, 13 Days, which came out in 2000, kind of a big hit. If you grew up in the 1990s or if you were like an adult in the 90s, you will recognize Donaldson's other big 90s hit, Dante's Peak, the disaster film about a volcano that came out the same summer as Volcano. Donaldson's from New Zealand. He doesn't really have like a particularly strong style. He's very much a journeyman director, but he has had other hits. He had uh, the 88 Tom Cruise movie Cocktail, which is like the third film, I think, or maybe the second film in the Tom Cruise is a hotshot insert profession who needs to learn humility series. Mm -hmm. Uh, Previous entries in that series include Top Gun, Days of Thunder, uh, Cocktail, oh, and The Color of Money. So that's four. Um, And then uh, Donaldson directed Species, which is a 95 horror film, a movie we will cover on this podcast at some point in the future uh, that Donaldson directed, which was a hit, like broke a hundred million dollars was 2003's the recruit, um, which is a spy movie with Pacino and um, Colin Farrell. And I saw that in theaters in high school. I uh, don't remember a thing about it. It's basically a forgotten movie, um, but we will probably mm. cover it. white sands, much less successful picture than all of those other ones, kind of a big flop. And we will go into why. Uh, Willem Dafoe, who is the star of this movie, is at this point a kind of a he's a he's a he's a big name Hollywood guy. He's not like a megastar. He'll become a megastar at the end of the decade or the beginning of the next decade with Spider Man, but he's still like a star. We saw him previously in Flight of the Intruder, and then also in Clear and Present Danger. And at this point, he he has a deep filmography at this point already, but he has notable roles in Paul Schrader's Light Sleeper, Alan Parker's Mississippi Burning. Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, Oliver Stone's Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July, and Walter Hill's Streets of Fire. I'm a big fan of Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. 
Uh, she did not do a ton of work in Hollywood, but I think the work she did do really stands up well. Uh, she was the uh, had the lead female performance in the aforementioned The Color of Money, for which I think she got an Academy Award nomination. That movie is a sequel to the 1960 film The Hustler with Paul Newman. Both of them are great. I think The Color of Money is actually super underrated in Scorsese's filmography. I totally agree with you. Um, yeah. And then she also starred in James Cameron's The Abyss, as well as the kind of generically directed but monster hit with Kevin Costner, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. She was made Marion in that. I, I'm going to skip Mickey Rourke because we'll get to him, and Sam Jackson will get to him on, in future episodes. I will say that this is 92, and Sam Jackson is not quite a star yet at this point. No, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, he's, he's, he really isn't yet. No, yeah. no, he, you'll, you'll find him in these like small but in still very compelling parts, but he's not he's not someone on the marquee. Um, if you if you were paying attention to his career, you will have noticed him in Coming to America, Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, Juice. He's sort of a, a Spike Lee guy, pretty much. He was in Patriot Games uh, in a very small role. The following year, he's in Menace to Society uh, and True Romance. And then in 94, he's in Pulp Fiction. And then that's when he becomes the Sam Jackson that, you know, is one of the most bankable black stars in Hollywood, one of the bankable stars in Hollywood. Mickey Rourke, kind of the same story. He's about to hit his decline, but he's still kind of he's he's a he's a known quantity at this point in Hollywood. So that's where we are with the the cast. Um, this movie we were talking about this beforehand. Uh, not good. Not really. It's well, I watched this movie twice, which sounds strange because it's not good. You know, usually the movies we watch like. I can sort of like do something else and watch and make sense of it. I actually had trouble following it the first time. So I was like, oh, I got to watch the movie again. But then I realized it wasn't my fault. Uh, it legitimately doesn't make a lot of sense. The plot moves like there's no, you know, massive what they call plot holes. The, the motivations of the characters don't make sense. And the pacing, I guess, sort of also adds to that. William Defoe is a small town sheriff in New Mexico. And he finds, you know, a murdered man in the desert with a suitcase full of $500,000 and for some reason he becomes intent on on solving this crime alone and he impersonates the guy who was supposed to be the courier for for um you know an arms deal and he ends up mixed up with uh Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio who knows that he's not he's an impersonator but still plays along and they he He's married at the beginning of the movie. I mean, he's married at the end of the movie. He's married. He seems to have a good relationship with his wife. He ends up having an affair with her, getting involved in all this stuff. And his motivation is like, he doesn't seem that passionate about it. Mary Elizabeth and Master Antonio's character, very strange. What she's doing in this world of arms dealers seems like she's selling arms to some kind of, or she's providing arms to some kind of idealistic cause. Freedom Fighter, National Liberation Movement, only hinted at. Mickey Rourke is sort of like, you know, cool. Like, he's always kind of cool in his movies. But And then it's revealed that he's a CIA agent, and that's what he's doing. And it's it's a bit of a mess, and it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's almost sometimes I'm like, this kind of feels like No Country for Old Men because of the, you know, just chancing across the money in the desert and like getting involved in a situation that was way out of control. But it's nowhere near as like, you know, dark and compelling as that movie. And it's kind of like, I don't know if it's just seeing Willem Dafoe, but I was like, what if 
David Lynch had directed this movie and made it uh, like a billion times weirder. Yeah. And then the kind of randomness of the characters and their um, apparent strange motivations or lack of motivations would have been like an interesting artistic choice. As it exists, it's very hard to believe as a straightforward drama. Like this guy really cares that much about the crime. Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio would want to fall in love with him. Samuel L. Jackson would want to risk his career for whatever caper he's getting involved with Mickey Rourke, just being a CIA agent. It's, it's all very odd. I guess, you know, if you wanted to try to like save the movie from itself, you could propose something like, well, I mean, this take is like, well, this is about post history where people's motivations don't add up uh, anymore. So it, it of course seems a little thin um, because all of the ideological motivations that existed before, uh, uh, you know, don't make sense anymore. And and that's a stretch. I just don't think it's very well made, but I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> Two things that com- might support that theory. One is the fact that this is sort of a, a midlife crisis movie as for Willem Dafoe's character. He sets out on this trip in his like, what, his like, Mustang or Thunderbird or something like that. I think it's, I think yeah. it's, a, it's a, it's a, like a bright blue Mustang. It's a very, very handsome car. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he looks great. It's like, it's a little, a bit of an escapist fantasy for him. He's like a little maybe bored as the small town sheriff and he's going off on this and he has an affair, which he, you know, he's able to break off at the end because he's still in love with his wife. So the other thing about it is the weird, and you can talk about this a little bit is the weird, um, motivation, for the arms deal of the movie, which is not a terribly big arms deal, like half a million dollars, I think even in 1992, I mean, it's a lot of money, but it's not like a world changing amount of arms. Like that's not going to start a war or something or, or, or supply a war, but Mickey Rourke's character is like, Oh, we want the arms deal to go through because this is a trope we see in many of these nineties films, end of cold war films about wanting like the military industrial complex needs to continue. Right. So we're going to go through with the deal because we're supporting the military industrial complex. $500,000. We're talking about trillions when it comes to, so it's not like a huge amount of money. So I, I don't know if the motive, that motivation makes sense. It's all a little bit of a mess. It's not terrible. Like it's got a lot of good actors in it. The dialogue's not, totally stupid it just doesn't really work it's sort of like the to, to the extent that there's any real kind of like legible politics in this movie it's it's sort of, it's just it's tropes that would be familiar to an audience at this point and like an audience of moviegoers who go to these kind of movies will recognize these tropes will recognize um and will recognize sort of like what they're alluding to so right like or recognize that the very thin idea that um, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio's character is kind of funneling money to, um, you know, rebel groups or national groups or whomever will be familiar to Americans who lived through Iran-Contra, who will be familiar to Americans who, you know, <laughs> who watched uh, Rambo 3 and saw, you know, the original um, post-film stinger, you know, with this movie dedicated to the brave fighters of the Mujahideen. All that stuff will be familiar to a viewer, and then the you know the CIA wanting to keep the military industrial complex in uh, in gear. It's going to also be uh, 
a familiar trope to viewers. But in terms of the movie actually developing any of the any of these ideas, they're not. It doesn't really do that at all. Um, you know, I, I I kind of liked this movie, but that's mainly because I like the actors and I like the atmosphere. I sort of think that this kind of movie just doesn't exist anymore, which we've talked about many times. And so seeing one of them um, just like makes me happy. It scratches scratches an itch, like going to a like going to uh, an Applebee's. Um, kind of, yeah. kind of deal. Uh, but, uh, the movie, yeah, the movie isn't, isn't particularly good. Um, and doesn't really have a ton to say in terms of kind of the, the post cold war moment that the politics might be kind of involved in the background of the motivations, but the characters themselves seem actually very apolitical. And so that just leaves it kind of like, yeah, this the, the politics stuff is mainly, mainly window dressing. There's there's some like a little uh, you know, cultural resentment elements in there when Willem Dafoe threatens him with arrest. Uh, Sam Jackson's character is like, you know, well, I'm a, I'm a minority officer, which is like a weird thing that no person would say. That's like bad script writing. Like he would just say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black officer. He's like, I'm a, I'm a minority officer with a spotless record. Who's going to believe you? You're a redneck cop, that kind of thing. You can imagine in a theater, you know, insofar that anyone went to this movie and went to see this movie in a theater, I think it only grossed $8 million domestic, um, which is not good. Uh, you, you could imagine, you know, some, you know, Limbaugh listing chug, Chud being like, yeah, 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 you tell him. Or being, you know, not you tell him, but sort of like being like, yeah, those blacks, they, they, they use that stuff. They use that stuff to their advantage. <laughs> yeah, and like to see a character like cynically admitting to it, they're like, "That's right, that's how it works." <laughs> <laughs> that's that affirmative action, right? right exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, but that's really it. I mean, that's re- that's really it in terms of the movies, politics. Uh, I'm trying to think of if, if there's anything, anything especially noteworthy. I mean, there there's you know, back to the the smuggling arms there's a scene where you meet the arms dealers one of them is um uh clear and present unclear and present danger stand by fred thompson always yeah <laughs> he shows he's up. almost like in every other movie <laughs> right <laughs> uh he, fi- he fires a, a rocket launcher which is pretty cool but yeah it, it's the movie is much more about kind of like Willem Dafoe's character getting caught up in this convoluted web of alliances and interests and so on and so forth. And then also kind of having this, as you said, affair with Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio's character. Um, and then kind of Mickey Rourke in the background as like a menacing figure. And the problem with it as a movie is that like all of this stuff is very underdeveloped. You spoke to this. There's not, none of the characters have anything that would apparently draw someone else to them. Right. Like there's a version of this movie that's more or less the same, but Mastrantonio's character is kind of much more of the protagonist and much more ideological as compared to, say, the apolitical um, Defoe and the cynical Mickey Rourke. And it's her sort of like ideological fervor that attracts the other people to her. Like that's, I, I I can like, I can picture this version of the movie in my head very clearly because then like the politics is a bit more, a bit more developed. There's a bit more of a motivation for why anyone would be in business with her in the first place. Um, uh, and would, and would, it would give you really something to grab onto, but, uh, it really seems, I mean, it seems as if, you know, this movie, which I think is billed as a crime thriller, I, I refer to it as a crime thriller, but it's kind of in this 
in the style that was a thing in the late eighties and early nineties. It's like not quite a crime thriller, not quite an erotic thriller kind of parts of both. Um, the Alec Baldwin movie, Miami blues is like one of these kinds of movies. Um, uh, to live and die in LA is one, of, one another one of the kind of the movies are kind of glossy. I mean, even though this takes place in New Mexico, there's like a glossiness to it. Um, it's, it's much more going for a vibe. And I think, I think it does work on that level as like a vibe movie, but as a movie that has some politics in it, it's sort of, you know, it's not really, there's not really much there. Another kind of nineties thing it has going on is the Southwest. Like that was huge. Like for some reason, New Mexico was huge in the nineties. Do you remember this? Like people were obsessed with like Santa Fe architecture and yes. New, yeah. New, New Mexico style. So I think it was almost just like, kind of like, they picked a locale that was like going to be kind of compelling for people at the time. Like that's, that's the thing about you have to remember about these movies. Like they kind of come from a lost world, you know, like there's lots of signifiers in the movies that, that like we barely understand anymore. Cause like, you know, we, we are just like losing the context more and more, but like, I think making a, a movie set in New Mexico in 1992 kind of like said something a little bit more than it might say now you're like, Oh yeah, New Mexico, it's a place. It, it was invested with a kind of romance in the early 90s for for a, a lot of different reasons. I think just because of the popularity of the design of the area. But um, so I think that that was another thing that's sort of like a takeaway. This movie was like hip is the, the wrong word on trend in a certain way uh, with with a lot of its things. I mean, even if it's stars like with Willem Dafoe, I mean, Willem Dafoe is almost like. Well, no, I mean, he'd been in a lot of Hollywood movies, but he's a little bit of a he's a little bit of an indie movie guy. So there's like I think this movie was like maybe trying to be a little cooler uh, than it really was or something like that. Um, You know, in the same way where you have like you, you see you see Hollywood movies now and you're like, oh, this is like trying to be a be a hip movie you know maybe it has a star that you would more associate with indie movies maybe it has a visual style you'd more associate with indie movies or maybe it's trying to be edgy in a certain way but it's still very much a hollywood movie um so yeah that was just some thoughts about the datedness of the movie um again my only stab at making a real um thing is that the passionlessness of the characters i think which makes it makes it so difficult to believe that they would do any of these things is maybe some kind of unintentional comment on on the um the uh just the the fallout of the end of the cold war the entering into post-history and people's motivations not making a whole hell of a lot of sense i mean you know there's there's no there's no ideological matrix to plug themselves in. They're all kind of aimless and trying to figure things out. So it is a kind of post-historical thriller in that way. But there's not that many thrills. That's the problem. This is like there's not that much passion. The characters are passionless. You don't believe the love affair. I mean, as you said, like they have pretty good chemistry as actors. They're both great actors. They they sort of like, you know, seem to be attracted to each other legitimately on screen. But you're like, there's no more like why why does she like him why does he like her there's not enough dialogue to make it make sense that you know there's not enough friction they're just like oh we're attracted to each other you know like um so there's something a little bit uh just weak about the whole movie but it's not terrible either i didn't watch it. i wasn't like we've watched some movies on this thing where i was on this on this podcast where i've just been like this is difficult to watch this wasn't like that i was just like what is going on with this? This is really not, really not quite, uh, quite adding up. Um, 
So anyway, uh, not one of the best, definitely not one of the worst. And um, yeah, not uh, not giving me a whole lot to talk about in terms of it. I didn't see I don't think that they were trying to make a psychological thriller, right, where the characters uh, motivations were tortured and passionate or confusing and um, obsessive, you know, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like a North by Northwest or, or more, more to, uh, more like uh, vertigo would be the better example there. It was just sort of like, uh, just meaningless. (laughs) Yeah. So I feel like that, that kind of counts as our our final thoughts on the movie, but you know, one thing that we had talked about before recording the podcast is at the very least the arms, smuggling aspect of this is an excuse to talk about um, some news, like the developments in the uh, Ukraine war, which are very significant. Um, And, you know, you can, you can imagine a version of this movie that takes place. It's like more modern and involves, you know, people raising money to to send arms over to Ukraine, a more compelling movie. Uh, But um, kind of the, the news, it's just sort of the, Ukrainian offensive um, that has really begun to push Russian forces back um, and is sort of threatening the Russian position in the south, if I have that right. Um, yes. And the east. I mean, yes, and the east. In the east. Yeah. You, you yeah. recently wrote a little about kind of what this reversal in fortune, not reversal in fortunes, but this um, advance on Ukraine's part as like kind of what it maybe signifies in domestic U.S. discourse about the war, um, which is just that it, it puts sort of a lie to some of the defenders of Putin, especially on the right. Um, there was a there's been a clip going around of Tucker Carlson kind of very recently going on about how Ukraine's doomed to lose, and that kind of is is I think uh, emblematic of uh, a view on the on the, on the populist right, the nationalist right, whatever you want to call it, that um, Ukraine should just give up. And Russia is like this strong, powerful country that is really the real leader of the West. That's sort of like the, the subtext of all of this. The, the the discourse around it has shifted a lot since the beginning of the war, but there's been just a bunch of BS narratives that kind of have to retreat over and over. First of all, you know, there was this whole thing, this discourse before that, there was no possible way Putin was going to invade. It was ridiculous. This was all just the, you know, bullshit cooked up by the Western intelligence agencies the same kind of bullshit that led to Iraq or blah, 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 which many of these people actually supported, but whatever. And then, you know, the war starts and then it's like, well, look, I mean, I was surprised too. Western governments were surprised about the resilience of Ukraine. I I thought that, that Russia, you know, would quickly conquer and cause a collapse of the country. That didn't happen. And it just became clearer and clearer that, you know, not only uh, after the Russians had to retreat from, from near Kiev, then they launched a more successful attack in the east, which kind of stopped. And now we're seeing this kind of going to the third phase of the war, this uh, Ukrainian counterattack. Look, the, the quick victory, lightning victory that it wanted at the beginning is out of the question. It Now it's even and then, you know, in the east, it seemed like, well, they might grind them down and grind them down with artillery and and war of position and eventually force, you know, 
Ukrainian forces into untenable positions and and then, you know, really begin to to deal serious blows against against the Ukrainian side who has, you know, limited resources and and manpower. Now, it, you know, with this with this counterattack, which has been a terrific success, especially um, in in the east of the country, it, it's 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 hard to imagine um, in the present point, you know, how this could be turned around into some kind of Russian victory. I mean, the best I think that they could accomplish now is to hold on to the parts of Donbass that they were able to uh, capture in the recent offensives. But I think that that it might even be in question They're, you know, in the south. Um, I think that they might lose the territory that they were able to capture in the south. I mean, it seems like the speed of these Ukraine, we don't know how much losses are at what cost they're coming, but the speed and decisiveness of these advances are pretty remarkable. Um, and, you know, and now you just have to revisit the whole boosterism of, you know, belief that there was some brilliance or strength in, in the Russian side and that they were going to be able to accomplish this and that it was total fantasy on the part of the West to believe that Ukraine could stand up to them. And by arming them, we were just extending the war. There was no way they could win. It was a hopeless situation. That all seems like, you know, bullshit now. It seemed like bullshit to me then. I was like, it seems like they're quitting themselves pretty well. But now it's like, okay, the more of the proof is of of their ability to fight and win at least tactically is is starting to become apparent so yeah that was basically what i was saying and i was annoyed with with the kind of constantly shifting narrative that first russia was going to win quickly then eventually they were going to destroy them that it was only a matter of time that you know objectively you know of course ukraine was going to lose I mean, Ukraine still has much territory. I mean, from a certain perspective, yes. Ukraine still has a lot of territory that's under Russian control, especially if you count Crimea and the parts of the Donbass that were already controlled. But, um, you know, after 2014. But, um, yeah, it seems like this narrative of Russian victory, Russian strength, Russian victory, Russian Putin's uh, brilliance as a leader, military leader, and 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 an ideological, strategic leader of the world is is nonsense and just pathetic propaganda. You read about the '30s and the '40s when these dictatorships had these worldwide movements of apologists who would uh, buy these uh, reality denying lies about you know their 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 projects. And justify them, and and you can kind of see what that's like to live through. Now you're like, oh, that's what it was like to see people like do everything Stalin did was was actually brilliant, or you know, or, or justify it. And everything Hitler did was was you know proving that he was invincible. And that kind of power worship, which you know George Orwell famously criticized, said you know these people just always think that the big bad bullies are the ones that really are going to call the shots and the west is too stupid or too weak uh, to deal with these kinds of kinds of figures and it's just a similar a similar um atmosphere i think uh in terms of discourse i think you know obviously this is not as apocalyptic as that as those times but that's just some of my thoughts about that no i think it's sort of one thing that this reminds me of or that I'm thinking of is our, our conversation in a previous episode 
just about sort of the the um, about not underestimating the strength and fervor for which people will fight for national liberation or will fight for something like you know democratic life. Um, that you know, on the right, because on the right, on this segment of the right, there is a real hostility to democracy, just sort of like as a in general. I think what's what we what we're witnessing is sort of people backfilling, like starting with their hostility to democracy and to liberal democracy and whatever. And not to say that Ukraine perfectly embodies either of those things, but can, Ukraine has become a symbol for those things, for democratic self-determination. Um, uh, they have their the hostility to this, to that, which they see as responsible for, you know, the collapse of traditional hierarchies, for all kinds of things that is that are catastrophic in their minds. Um and they and then Putin and in Putin's Russia, um, which I think objectively is sort of just like a gangster state, like, <laughs> um, but has been able to at least create the image of itself, much in the same way, um, like Orban's uh, Hungary, as some sort of like you know defender of traditional Western values, traditional Western civilization. Uh, uh, and so you have people on the nationalist right, on the populist or whomever, uh, looking at. Putin, um, and kind of like, you know, beginning with their hostility to liberal democracy saying, well, you know, Putin, Putin's Russia is obviously just like stronger and more powerful because of what it represents. So obviously they're going to prevail in this aggressive war. Um, I'm thinking of, of JD Vance, the Ohio Senate candidate, venture capitalists, you know, Chud, um, saying that he doesn't care about what happens to Ukraine. Um, it's sort of like, you know, whatever, or, uh, what's his name? Um, the American conservative guy who loves Hungary and is like, has weird psychosexual issues. Um, Roger Ayer. Uh, yeah, Roger Ayer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's gotta be him. <laughs> uh, also kind of being on this whole, on this whole thing. So. Uh, yeah. uh, what, what, it, what is sort of like not anticipated by, I think by, by these, by these folks is that people, which we've seen historically will fight fiercely for self-determination. Um, I mean, that may be the thing that people will fight most fiercely for in the modern era. Uh, and they'll fight pretty fiercely for democracy on Twitter. There's a bit of a conversation about this sort of, I think Adam Serwer, a uh, guest in a previous episode, pointed this out in relation to U.S. history, that like some of this conversation is reminiscent of how Southern reactionaries in the, in the eve of the Civil War were like very confident they could sort of beat the North in open conflict because, you know, these are just a bunch of, you know, they're, they're wage workers and they're shopkeepers and they're kind of a bourgeois occupation so on and so forth. And what those reactionaries didn't anticipate is that, in fact, these people would be willing to fight to, <laughs> to the bone to preserve, right. um, preserve the union and preserve sort of what that represented. And I think we see this again and again, that when, when push does come to shove, eventually democracies will mobilize in a way that more often than not, um, uh, de- defeats their authoritarian foes. That's true. I, I, I think I think the military performance of democracies is just like generally superior to that of authoritarian states. And I think it, I think it's has something to do with kind of like the ideological fervor that democracy can generate in a populace. 
Yeah, I agree with you totally. And also, there's like the the it has the mechanical ability in a way. It has the has the institutions to mobilize because it has a civil society, and it has people who have have organized before and are, have causes that they're enthusiastic about. It's not a hollowed out society where everyone is you know doesn't know each other and doesn't like their neighbors and so on and so forth. Pe- people were talking about even before the war that Ukrainian civil society was was highly integrated, highly complex. You know, unlike Russia. Um, and not, you know, I think it's electoral process and it's was was corrupted and it was still highly dominated by these kind of oligarch figures and politics. But it's did it did happen. I mean, as you can see through that's, you know, several big uprisings against its corrupt governments, it did have this kind of um, democratic society, you know, kind of existing under an imperfect democratic government, which I think we also kind of have in the United States. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's not only just that the, the um, democracy ha- generates an enthusiasm for its defense, it has the social institutions for that. And dictatorships can only kind of fake it. Like right. they have to do, they have to do an enormous amount of like propaganda, sort of astroturfing um, mass organizations to do that. And democracy is kind of organic, democratic societies kind of organically generate these mass organizations, these civil society groups, voluntarism, you know, feeling like you're bought into the society and you want to defend it and not feeling like, you know, oh, I'm just going to keep my head down and hope for this to pass. So I think it's just like, yeah, underestimation, you know, something I talked about at the beginning of this conflict was the underestimation of democracies, both the Western democracies, um, the public feeling of enthusiasm for Ukraine and also Ukraine's own democratic culture as being part of its war fighting effort in this. Look, I'm not going to pretend that there are not really unsavory parts of Ukrainian civil society that if they were in the United States would really alarm us. That's of course there's a far right there. But the fact of the matter is, it's like they, the, the, the national project led by this president is so hegemonic that they have even, you know, been able to uh, recruit the entire political society from left to right behind this one project. And so like, yeah, I'm sure, you know, under, conditions of political chaos it would be horrible for those people to be armed and to have you know a sense of popular legitimacy but the fact of the matter is is like they're like they've united the whole country with this one project which is to fight the invasion they've organized the country around that and it's working and i just think like if it was just that um Ukraine was this vassal of NATO or Western imperialism and was really a hollow. It, it would be like South Vietnam in the sense that it would collapse. Right. Right. It, it, exactly. It, 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 South Vietnam collapsed. It, right. Even with years and years and years of, of U.S. support and arms, material, troops, it collapsed immediately or Afghanistan was collapsed immediately. These countries that really were not, did not generate the national enthusiasm maybe it was too early maybe they didn't their institutions were corrupt maybe people just didn't feel like the national feelings for that government you know but that's not what happened here the government even before the massive transfer of western arms 
I mean, you know, they had some help before, but was able to not collapse. And I was like, okay, once they don't collapse and the, they have the backing of the public and the and they hold together, then you're like, okay, this is this is something different in kind than the U.S. and Vietnam supporting South Vietnam. This is a country that has buy-in from its citizenships, has popular legitimacy, wants is, is getting mass enthusiasm behind it. So I just think that it's you. You have to be completely deluded to believe that this is just like a paper tiger set up by the West. No, it has its own internal legitimacy. And and it's in, it's entire you see in the way Ukrainians relate to the politics. I mean, they're fighting for their lives literally. But you see it in the way that Ukrainians relate to the politics of the external of the West. They're only interested to in their fairness. They're only interested in politicians that have a very you know friendly stance towards their um, you know their aspirations here because they're just like, look, we have one thing going on right now: the war. We need to win the war. And uh, yeah, so I, I just think that this, the, 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 the idea that this, was, this is some kind of paper tiger uh, held up by NATO and there's, there's nothing, it's hollow. And if it wasn't for Western support, it would completely collapse overnight. I think they might struggle and they might lose without Western support, but I don't think that it would be a pushover. Um, yeah, I, I tend to think that yeah. given what we've seen without Western support, the, the likely outcome is that, yeah, the Russian, like it becomes, this is already a, a, a brutal war. I think without Western support and with Ukraine on a much more of a defensive front, it'd become even more brutal because it'll be, it'll be, it'll be much more like Syria, right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Right. With, yeah. with, with, with civilian casualties, um, far worse and with the Russian military out of frustration um, escalating its tactics even more than it already has. So. Well, yeah. And that's, that's another thing of what I don't understand about the people who, who don't, this is more left than a right thing thing about, you know, saying that the arms transfers are extending the war, causing too much suffering. I don't think so. I think that, that when, if you physically, this is war, it's physical. The troops need to be stopped so they can't drop their bombs and shoot their guns. You know, that's basically it. It's like you by preventing the Russians from getting their hands on more Ukrainians, you're going to prevent them from killing them because they clearly like to use indiscriminate fire against them. They clearly are not, uh, you know, are undisciplined or maybe even have intentional orders to commit massacres. So by just for, from my perspective, this is like where this is goes back into the old world and we're not maybe in our postmodern condition. We can't think about things in these terms. Physically, it's war. Physically preventing the enemy troops from coming into your territory is important <laughs> to save your country. You Physically know, like they're severing, destroy severing their supply lines, right? Sort of like yeah. harassing them in their rear, making it difficult, which – you were you're talking earlier about sort of like early signs that this war was not going to be a walk in the park for Russia. For, to my mind, the earliest sign was when we were getting reports of just like not enough supplies, not enough material, difficulty, you know, repairing vehicles, difficulty getting ammunition to the front. That, you know, it's it's sort of it's war fighting. War fighting 101 is that like fighting in war is 90% about your supply lines. Um 
my my uh, my favorite. This is a weird thing to say. My favorite campaign of the U.S. Civil War is the Vicksburg campaign, precisely because it is a case study in innovation in the use of supply lines, like Ulysses S. Grant's splitting his forces, having them go, uh, uh, shortening their supply lines, having them live off the land as much as possible in order to, in order to move quickly and divide Confederate forces, um, uh, as quickly as possible is sort of like a, it, it is a case study and why, and why this is, this is what fighting wars is about. It's logistics and supplies is all these things. The U S military is not powerful because it has the biggest bombs and the most advanced technology, which it does. But the U.S. military, the 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 example of what makes the U.S. military such a formidable force, even with its failures in occupations, is the fact that the U.S. military can ship fresh lobster anywhere in the world. Right. Yeah, it could just it could just provide food and comfort to its troops at like mass scales. Right. At mass yeah. scales on any, any place in the planet. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I think we're running over time. Uh, we already did our final thoughts on the movie. Um, it's, I mean, I'll just, one last thing on the movie. If you, it, if you, if you're like, if it's like a Sunday and you're kind of hungover, you should put it on. Yeah. Can't hurt. Can't hurt. You'll glance up. Uh, you'll see uh, Willem Dafoe and Mary Elizabeth Antonio make out a couple times, which is cool. Uh, and uh, you'll see Mickey work. Uh, this is a spoiler, I guess. You'll see Mickey work at like shot in the back, which is kind of cool. Um, so I like Mickey work. I do too. He's great. I think he's fun. It was, yeah. it was it was a good it was a good it was a good getting shot scene. You hear some <laughs> Samuel Jackson yelling, which is always a pleasure. Um, yeah. So lots, lots of stuff that it's good to just have on in the background. Assuming you don't have kids. I can't do that anymore because I have children now and they ask questions. That is our show. If you are not a subscriber, please subscribe. Uh, we're available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are found. If you subscribe, please leave a rating and a review. It really does help people find the show. And you can reach out to us on Twitter. I am at jbui. John, you are? I'm at Lionel underscore trolling. I'm not currently on Twitter, but that might be over by the time you hear this. Uh, you can also follow the podcast. We're at UnclearPod. I typically post things about the movies we watch, thoughts and movies, observations. Um, and other stuff will show up there at some point. So that's at UnclearPod. You can also reach out to us over email at unclearandpresentfeedback at fastmail.com. For this week in feedback, we have an email from Tom uh, commenting uh, on just our movie selection. Um, hello, Jamel and John. First, I'd like to thank you for creating the podcast. Uh, it's been a highlight of long car rides during a family road trip this week, and I sparked many good-natured debates among my siblings. It's great to hear. As someone who straddles the millennial Gen X border, it's been fascinating to revisit the films of the period through the political and cultural lens. I'd like to make a case for a film that may not be on your list yet. 1995's Strange Days, starring Ralph Fiennes. And oh, Angela hell yeah. Bassett. Let's definitely do that movie. <laughs> All right. There you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's probably the best of the mid-90s cyberpunk movies, and while the main plot is very much in the mystery thriller space, it's also chock full of strong political elements regarding race, policing, privacy, and alienation. The film was now set in a now anachronistic version of future Los Angeles leading up to New Year's Eve in the year 2000, which you may find interesting. 
In any case, looking forward to many future episodes and revisiting those these quintessentially 90s movies. Um, well, you're enthusiastic about it. I'll put it on the list. I've actually never seen Strange Days. It's a Catherine Bigelow picture, right? I think she it's one of her first films. Yeah. Yes, uh, it is. Um, I've never seen it. Uh, it's cool. But uh, I'm all for cyberpunk. And um, I like Angela Bassett a lot. Uh, so uh, let's let's do Strange Days at some point. I guess if that's 95, actually should be coming up pretty quick, pretty soon on, on the list. Uh, and speaking of the list, uh, episodes come out every other Friday. And so our next episode will be Passenger 57. Uh, 90, another 1992 movie directed by Kevin Hooks, starring Wesley Snipes. I think this is, this is our first Wesley Snipes starring film. Uh, a quick plot synopsis. An infamous terrorist has evaded capture for a long time by being extremely clever and ruthless. Things get interesting when he hijacks a plane carrying famous security expert John Cutter, who isn't about to stand for this sort of thing. Uh, I like this movie a lot. It's very stupid. <laughs> but I like this movie quite a bit. Uh, and I like Wesley Snipes, so um, that will be fun to watch. It's available for watching, for streaming, whatever, for rental on Amazon and iTunes. And I think we'll have a guest for this one. Stay tuned for that, but I think we'll have a guest for this one. Our producer is Connor Lynch, and our artwork is from Rachel Eck. For John Gans, I am Jamel Bowie, and this is Unclear and Present Danger. See you next time. <laughs>